Again, if you've got your Bibles, we'll be in uh, Galatians chapter 4, however you access those. Uh, we'll be uh, jumping into that passage in just a minute. And we're continuing this series on embracing pleasure. So this year we've been journeying through uh, what it means to really be a follower of Christ. And we've said that it, it boils down to this idea that if I'm a Christ follower, it means that it's the life that I believe brings me the most pleasure, peace, meaning, and hope. And we started off the year looking at peace and how do we have the anchors of peace in our life. And over the last few weeks, we've been looking at pleasure And again, when you throw that word pleasure out there, it seems almost contradictory to church and Christianity. It feels like they're like polar opposites. But yet when you look at Scripture, I believe what Scripture teaches is that the Christian life is the most pleasurable life we can live. We've kind of been basing this out of John 10.10 where it says the the thief, Satan, the, the enemy of God, is the one who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus, he says, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly, more than you can ever know, more pleasure, more peace, more meaning and hope than you can handle in your life. Not just enough, but even more than enough. And even if we talk about this among Christians, right, we, we, we think, well, let's use different words. Like we talked about, you know, instead of, a, instead of pleasure, let's use joy or blessed. Some words that doesn't quite bring up the connotation of pleasure. But the truth is, it is pleasurable. We act like the Christian life sometimes should be this elimination of fun or this elimination of pleasure. We think it's restraint instead of freedom. And we're basically inviting people to a prison and we're un- we are can't fathom why they want to come. And we say things where you, you, you just need to come to church. Or you just need to have a relationship with God. Can I tell you, we're wired to not just need things, but we're also desired to want things. And I don't know about you, but when I have a need versus a want, do you know which one I'm going to lean toward? The want. Like, I, I know that I need to eat a balanced diet, healthy diet. I need some vegetables. I need, you know, less carbs in my life. There's some things I need to do, but I want chocolate. I I want a steak. I want fried chicken sometimes. Like I just have these wants and and when it boils down to it, sometimes I am going to choose that want. Like that's where my motivation truly comes through. And, And this idea of embracing pleasure is moving this Christian life from something that I just need to something that I actually want to do and want to experience. And I think that's the reason God actually created all of us as pleasure seekers. God created us with a desire for pleasure, but the beauty of this is he also provides for our pleasure. This, this desire for pleasure is normal. It is how God designed you. So why do we feel sometimes that it's so unnatural unhealthy or ungodly and we going back to week one we said it boils down to usually one of these things we either think the christian life is about suffering or that the earthly actions that we like are sinful or there's just got to be serious christian life has got to be serious all the time we can't smile and be a church we can't smile and be a christian and the truth is all those things are true sometimes it is serious business it there are things that are sinful we should avoid and there's times we will suffer following Christ, but those are kind of the guardrails of our life that we flow in instead of the box that we have to live in. And so we get to experience this incredible freedom and pleasure as we live it out. And 
kind of one of the sayings we've been saying over and over again is this. The truth is that all pleasure isn't sin and all restraint is not righteousness. Just because you hold things back doesn't mean it's righteous. And just because you enjoy and love doing something doesn't mean it's sinful. So how do we get past this? How do we get past this idea, this old-fashioned religion that just bogs me down, weighs me down? Like, I didn't really, some of you may be thinking that this morning. Like, I didn't really want to come this morning. I needed to come. I didn't really want to come. So I'm here. But how do we get past that? And I love that the book of Galatians deals with this. And that's what we've been journeying through is Paul is writing this book to a church that has basically gone back and said, you know what? Being a Christ follower, following the teachings of Jesus, it's about rules. Here's what we can do and here's what we can't do. And Paul basically writes him a letter busting that up. Like, no, stop. Stop thinking this way. All through this letter, he is like, you're just, you're, you're befuddling me. I'm perplexed. I'm disappointed in you. Like, why are you doing this? He just keeps saying this to them. He's like shocked by their behavior. And what he does is he, he basically moves them and says, you're desiring this, these restraint and these rules, what you ought to desire. There are certain other desires that you ought to embrace that help you walk in the pleasure of being a Christ follower. And we knocked out two of those desires already. The first was his desire for the gospel that we could actually, this gospel of grace, that we can have peace with our creator, that as we look fundamentally at who we are and how we experience life and and we're honest with ourselves, we realize we have a broken nature that needs healing and that healing and that restoration can only come from grace through Christ, through the work of Christ. And last week we talked about we experience, uh, we can start to experience pleasure as we embrace the idea of living out our faith moving our faith from this passive thing that we think it's something to hold on to or just something to have to this active faith of something we exercise and engage and it helps us move forward in new accomplishments and new possibilities every day. It's not a static life of safety and security. It's constantly moving forward, experiencing new things. Now, before we move to the next desire to embrace that I want to talk about today, I want us to maybe better understand the group of people that Paul is writing this letter to. Some of Paul's letters were written to encourage churches. You can read those, and he's like, you know, you just, when I think about you, my heart beats a little faster. Like, he just, he's writing them this love letter. Like, your testimony is amazing. The stories I'm hearing about you, I just am so grateful for. Some churches he writes, and he's like rebuking specific sin in their life. And he's like, look, I haven't heard this about your church, and it's not good. You're doing this and this and this. Stop doing those things. Well, in Galatians, he is actually angry at them, not because of, like, these worldly sins. He's actually angry at them because they're being too religious, which is kind of weird, right? I mean, we, we think of Christianity as a religion, and Paul's like, guys, you're being too religious. He is upset that they're calling themselves Christians, but acting like it takes more than Christ to experience salvation. He's perplexed by this. He basically says, look, you won the lottery. Then why are you every day still walking to subway cars asking for quarters and nickels and dimes? You have all that you need. Stop begging for a little bit more. And over the next three chapters of this book, Paul will be battling against this idea that people believe, believe that it takes more than Jesus to find freedom and satisfaction. 
That is, we've got to add something to it. He will fight the idea that in some way we believe that it is still up to me to make a pathway to God. That it's by my hands that I reach God instead of God's hands reaching down to me. In some way that we have to do something to earn our salvation. And he's going to break free, help us break free of these chains of guilt and shame that we think it's up to us. And so the desire he is going to challenge us to embrace today is the, is the desire to live in freedom. To actually live in freedom. Like he, he's just going to bust this wall down. Like he's been chipping away at it in these first three chapters. And this chapter he brings out the sledgehammer. He's like, I'm just going to tell you guys. Like, look, I am going to about to bust down a wall that has been keeping you in some self-made prison. And so he starts this battle with this sledgehammer of saying, walk in freedom. And this isn't a freedom we've got to fight for. This isn't a freedom we've got to wait to somebody come to save us for. It is a freedom that has already been set before us. The battle is over. This is not some war we are walking into to defend our freedom. It's done. We must simply begin to walk into it. And this is why Paul is so perplexed by the Galatians. He's telling them basically, your cage is open. You've been set free. Come out. Or he's, he's like, I actually have seen you walk out of your cage before that was holding you. Why did you go back in? We used to have this dog growing up. His name was Fred, real original name. But Fred was the greatest escape artist dog I've ever seen in my life. We had him at school. We would sometimes we would go. We would try to like you know attach him to like our where we live, like a pipe or something like that. Just we were going to be gone for a little bit, and we would come home, and somehow Fred is just running around the neighborhood. Like I, he had a hidden key somewhere that he would do that. We had him at home at my parents' house one time, and we had a pen for him in the back. And he was a little boxer. I mean, he's maybe that tall. So we built about a four foot, five foot fence. Well, I'm telling you, by the time we were, like, driving the last stake in the fence, he's, like, climbing over it. He's out. So we, like, doubled it up. We got some more chicken wire. We built it higher. And we, he kept getting out. And we didn't know how. Well, one day I came and watched. And here's what he did. He would get a running start, go running, running, running around the pen until he was like a race car. Like, he would go up, up, up until he could throw one hand, one paw over the top and throw himself over. I mean, he would do anything to get out of his cage. And this is what Paul expects of us, right? He's like, you're pinned in, the, the gate's open, but instead of being like Fred and finding any way out, he's like, Galatians, why are you actually finding reasons to stay in? Get out. You're free. It's crazy. Paul gives them an escape plan for this man-made prison that they have created, fooling themselves and thinking that grace is not good enough to walk free. And this is what we see beginning in Galatians 4. So look at me, and we're going to dive in and learn some key principles, some, some freedoms that we can begin to walk in, some steps that we can begin to take. And it begins in Galatians 4, 1 through 7. And it'll be on the screen if you're not familiar with looking up passage. But let me read this to us. Galatians 4, 1 starts this. He says, What I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he's no different from a slave. So let me just stop there for a minute and context help you understand what he's he's picturing here he's writing to a church where very hierarchical system in their culture and so even if you were a son until you came of age you were not considered a full part of the household and once you turned a certain age usually 13 in that 
culture, once you hit that certain age, you became a full right. You owned part of the household. Now, they did this for a number of reasons. Sometimes children would die early. Sometimes, you know, separations would happen or things would come. And it wasn't until you were basically able to contribute to the household that you moved out from under the idea that you were just part of the household to a full owner of the household. So people would understand this. In our culture today, we would, you know, that's not something we understand, but people would have seen this. And the idea of a slave is not like a slave that we would understand in our culture. It was part of the household working, that they would work in the contributing to the household. So he says this, what I'm saying, as long as an heir is underage, he's no different from a slave. Although he actually owns the whole estate, the heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, talking about before Christ, we were in slavery under, under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts and the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. This is an incredible thought as you're hearing this. He's basically saying, through Christ, we have not been just part of the household of God, but now we've become part of the family of God. And we start to find freedom in community with God. That we actually have this community with God. It's not just a working relationship. It's not like he's our boss and I'm his, you know, subordinate. And, you know, he's not just a big man upstairs and I'm somebody roaming around down here that he checks in on occasionally. I become part of his community, part of his family. And Paul helps us to understand that this benefit is we to begin to desire freedom is that we are a full, complete part of God's family. And these verses talks about the idea of moving from slave to son. What an incredible idea. He says that before Christ, we were just like slaves, our heirs in a household waiting for inheritance, for freedom to be given. But through Christ, that freedom is here. You're part of the family now, complete. You don't have to wait on anything else. There's not another birthday to roll around. There's not some other ritual to roll around that is going to get you more part of the family. You're completely part of the community. Christ has set you free. And we've been brought in to the family of God with full rights and full access. Access to all of his wisdom, power, grace, mercy, and forgiveness. He isn't withholding anything. There is not anything that God has that he is not fully sharing with those that are in community with him. Our lives are intertwined and inseparable. We are family. And why is that so powerful? Why is it so powerful to be a part of God's family? First, it means this. It means unconditional acceptance. Unconditional acceptance. You don't have to prove yourself to God. You're part of the family. He chose you. Even in your sin, even at our worst, it says that Christ came for us. Even at our lowest, he chose you. Some of us live our whole lives trying to prove We matter to other people and that we matter to God. And I want to challenge you to do something this morning. Stop. Stop. Stop thinking that you got to wake up every morning and try to find a way to please God again. 
God loves you. God has accepted you. God has chosen you unconditionally, completely. And as we walk with him, new things take root and birth in our life. But I don't have to, I don't wake up in a deficit with God every day. I wake up completely connected to him through my relationship with Christ. You're already accepted. You're already adopted into his family. But it also means this. It's an unbreakable connection. Just like you don't have to prove yourself to God, you also don't have to worry about getting kicked out of the family. There's not going to be a day that shows up that God says, to mess up too much today, you're out. As a follower of Christ, his spirit is in you. It said that, that he has given the spirit in you that makes you cry out, Abba, Father. And that's a very personal way of saying father, of like, you are my dearest father, the closest that one can say. We're part of us. He is part of us. He is interwoven now into our DNA. That's not, it's unseparable. We cannot disconnect from God. And being the powerful part of being in God's family, it means that we also have this unimaginable inheritance, this inheritance from God, that God has made us his heir. Think about that for a minute. Everything that God has is yours. You need more hope? God's got more than you'll ever need. Do you need more forgiveness? God's got more than you'll ever need. Do you need more joy, more direction, more acceptance, more significance, more purpose? He has more than you will ever need. He'll never run out. His mercies are made new every day. Whatever was spent and used yesterday, it's renewed today. It's an unimaginable inheritance. And it's this amazing thing that even though we have been set free, and Paul is saying this, those Galatians, who you find yourself stuck in that cage, your man-made prison, realize this. Even in that man-made prison, you're not alone. You're not alone. You've surrendered your life to Christ. If you have that connection to God, he's there. You're not alone. He'll meet you where you are. He's there. Let's jump to Galatians 4, 8 through 11 and see what we see next. It says, Then, formerly, you did not know God. You were slaves to those by nature, uh, slaves of those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather that you are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved to them all over again? You're observing special days, months, and seasons, and years, and I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. What an incredible word from Paul. He's like, maybe I just wasted my time when I came and visited you guys. Maybe I just wasted my time when we started this church there in Galatians. He's like, because you're living like there's nothing that we talked about is real. You said, oh, yeah, we, we understand who Jesus is. We understand this. But you're living as if that's not true. Even though you're saying it with your mouth, you're not stepping out of your cage, your prison. And so what Paul reminds him here is this. We also experience freedom from captivity, freedom from captivity, that we were slaves to weak and miserable forces of this world. They have no power over you now. They are no longer your gods, even though they were never really gods to begin with, he says. I want you to understand what the Galatian church was doing. It says they were observing days and months and seasons. The Galatian church, instead of embracing the freedom found in Christ, 
were actually subjecting themselves to requirements and laws found in Jewish traditions. I want you to understand about this, something about this church. They weren't Jewish people. Like, it's not like the church in Jerusalem, people that grew up Jewish trying to break free from the old ways of the law and start to live in the freedom of Christ. He wrote a letter to them as well. But in this letter, these are people that never embraced the Jewish traditions, but as they embrace Christ, are now picking up Jewish traditions and telling them that we have to live by those. We have to hold these special days, these special weeks, these special festivals and season. And it's ideally they were saying, look, I guess to become more Christian, we need to become more Jewish, which didn't make sense. This is why Paul's like, I'm perplexed. I'm confused. I mean, it's, it's just crazy. This is why he is so strange. He, he just feels so strange as he's writing this letter. But as strange as that sounds, I want to tell you, we often are just like the Galatians. We put ourselves back under control of the authority of these weak and miserable forces that they mention. We turn back to them. We enslave ourselves to them. We can give control of our lives to things that still are inheritance instead of giving control to our lives to the one who gives us our inheritance. So what are these weak and miserable forces? The first one is this, is when we have an unhealthy elevation of the perception of others. That's what the church was trying to do. The Galatian church was basically trying to impress the Jewish community, Jewish Christians. Oh, you guys do that? We'll we'll do that too. We'll not just do it. Maybe we'll try to do a little better. And they, they were actually trying to increase the perception of others. And but Paul is saying is stop trying to impress people. Stop doing things just to get praise or receive a compliment. And I'm so glad we don't struggle with that anymore. I'm so glad that I don't struggle with that anymore. Like I, I had to at some point stop as, as I preach every week. Like I just have to stop going and saying to like Katie or anybody like, how was the sermon? Because all I'm wanting is like, Please tell me it was good. Please tell me. Was it better than last week? Was it better than this other guy? You Like we, we fish for compliments, don't we? I mean, we are so adept at that. Like we know we did something good. Be like, oh, you know, oh, that, that, that was nothing. And we're just waiting for somebody to tell us how good it was. We are craving elevation in the mind of other people. We, that is, I want to tell you, that is a miserable God. It's a miserable God. Because as soon as you get some praise, do you know what you want more of? Praise. And once you're maybe elevated in this person's eyes, what do you want to do? You would then want to be elevated in this person's eyes. And then somebody does something better over here in this person's eyes, and you're running back over here. No, 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 don't forget about me. Look how good I am. And you're running back. I'm good over here. And you're just, it's a merry-go-round. Around and around and around. And we're just waving all the time. Hey, take my picture. Look at me. It's a miserable God. We just go in circles around and around. But it's not just that. It's also this overwhelming desire for cultural significance. We think our value is found in what we can do or accomplish. We want others to think we are special, unique, and elevate us because of what we do, the work of our hands. And just like the Galatians, we think we can accomplish something for God. And we can do something of significance for God. I want you to think for just a moment how ridiculous that is. The creator 
of the universe does not need me or you to accomplish something for him. He's got it covered. I mean, he has got it covered. But when we get into this mindset of I got to do, do, do for God, I got to make this happen. I got to, I want to, I want to be valued. I want to be viewed as a leader. I want to be viewed as this. I want to be elevated in people's eyes. I want this, I want this resume of all the things that I've done so I can show my significance, my cultural significance. I want you to understand he doesn't want us to accomplish things for him. He wants us to experience the fruits of his accomplishment, the things he has already done. God is wanting to pour these out on to you. And as he does, they can't help but impact your life. And then your life impacts other people's lives. I want you to hear this. This is a weak God. It sounds good. Look at what I did for God. But it collapses under the truth. It's weak. These two things are the weak and miserable gods, the weak and miserable forces that we turn our lives over to. And Paul's saying, stop. Take those chains off. You're not chained to that anymore. Don't worry about cultural significance. Don't worry about other people's perceptions. Walk with me. Come on out. Take those chains off. Jump over to Galatians 4, 17 through 20. And he gives us another one. He says those people, he was talking about people that had come into the church that were now trying to stir up and move people in a different direction. Basically, the people who started all this problem. He said, those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good and to be so always, not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed by you. Again, he's telling you, you're, you're confusing me again. You're getting excited about the wrong things. Why don't you get excited about the things of God? Get excited about the fact that you're actually free. And he's like, please get excited, but get excited about the right things. And here's just a couple of things as we look at it and understand the story of what we can get excited about. A zeal for good is when we have a passion for growth over goals. Is we actually want to grow, not just do things. We can have a list. We can turn Christianity into a task list and a to-do list. I got to get up this morning. I got to pray. I got to read my Bible. I got to do this, and then I can do this. And then I, we go through this task list. I have to say this at this moment. I, on the weekend, I have to show up at church. I have to serve. I have to do this. And we just create this task list of things to go, of like goals. And those goals can be helpful. But can I tell you, I can go through my task list someday and never grow, never move forward. And what Paul is saying here is like, stop just trying to get things done. Actually start moving forward and growing. But it's also having a passion for contribution over just completion. Just getting something done. Just because you get something done doesn't mean you actually contributed to anything. And what he's saying here is start thinking about not just what you have to do in the church. This is the need versus want, right? This is like, well, I need to serve. What, what do you want to serve? Where can you add value to the body of Christ? Not just where you need it, because I want to tell you, in the body of Christ, where, where God gives you a passion, what you want to do is actually where you're most needed. It's not just when we say up here, hey, we need more help upstairs than the children, or we need 
margaritas. We, you know that we rarely do that. We, we put out opportunities, but let you find your passion to add, not just to complete a task, but to actually contribute. And when we do this, we understand we're, we're now not just walking out of the cage. We've not just taken the shackles off. But basically God's saying, where do you want to go? What do you want to do? I'm, we're walking together. What's the desire of your heart? And let's do this together. There's one more big one that I want you to see here, and it's Galatians 5. It's, I'm going to read verse 1 and then jump to verse 6. And it's a lengthy passage, but listen to this because it is a powerful passage here to begin Galatians 5, and it says this. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. I mean, can Paul be any more clear right there? Like, it's actually for freedom that you're free, not for captivity, not for making another jail cell to live in. It's for freedom. So stand firm then. Do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. And then jump down to 6, and he brings home a specific point. He says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You are turning, you are running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. He's basically saying that can destroy everything. Verse 10, I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, if I am preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? If in that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. What I want you to see here is what he breaks you free from are the chains of religion. We are free from the chains of religion. He deals with one primary issue here. It's the issue of circumcision. Circumcision was the mark of the old Jewish covenant through that, uh, that covenanted them with God. But through Christ, now there is no need of religious practice like that. It was obsolete. If you did it, fine. If you didn't do it, fine. But it had no bearing on your standing with God. And so there were people coming into the Galatian church saying, all right, everybody's got to be circumcised. And I can imagine how the guys in the church felt about that. I mean, it was like, all right. And so it was this battle going on back and forth. And Paul does something here that I think is kind of amazing. And you don't expect to find it in the Bible. It's verse 12. He's like, all right, those guys who are telling you to do that, if they want to cut that little piece off, tell them to cut it all off. I mean, that's what he says. That's what verse 12 says. If it's good for that, then go the whole way. If you think that will save you, don't hold back. But he's like, that's not it. He's showing you that is not it. How do you and I then be less religious? You may not have thought you would learn that today in church, but I want to tell you how to be less religious. One, stop doing things for God and start doing things with God. Start doing them with him. It's not about doing something for God and saying, God, here's my good deed for the day. It's walking with God. What can I do for him? It isn't a task list. We're free. Second, stop pursuing religious practices and start pursuing the practice of your faith. Actually start living it out. It says it's expressed through love. Who are you loving today on behalf of God? God showed us love. Show somebody else love. Start practicing walking out of your faith. And then finally, 
Stop following rules and start following Christ. I love what Jesus did when he called his disciples. He gave them basically one command. Follow me. Follow me. Come after me. And men and women would drop everything that they did, everything that they had, to follow him, to walk with him where he walked, to experience what he experienced, to journey through life with him. It's an amazing, amazing story. I want to ask you as we close with our question for the day is this. Are you tying yourself up with religious practice instead of walking in freedom that God has already provided for you? Are you putting yourself back in a religious prison, encumbering yourselves with the miserable and weak gods? Are you scared to step out and walk by faith and walk with God and instead just, you know, I'll find shelter in what I can do versus what God has already done? Would you realize that you're already part of, fully part of God's family? You're no longer alone. He is with you, and he is for you. Will you realize that you are free from captivity of these miserable and weak gods that used to own your life? They don't have to own you anymore. You do not have to submit to them anymore. Realize that you are free to chase the desires that God has put in your heart with zeal and passion, not making about goals and completion. You're no longer controlled by just getting things done, but you're doing things with God. Would you realize that you are free from the practice of religion and can now embrace a relationship with God and you are no longer encumbered by tasks and practice, but you are now in the presence of God and he is with you every step of the way. Would you desire freedom this morning? That's what Paul was telling the Galatian church. Would you desire to actually live in the freedom that Christ has given you instead of encumbering ourselves with religious practices and placing ourselves back in captivity? Would you pray with me this morning?